Hey guys, I'm Logan. And I'm Patsy. And this is Chills, a true crime podcast. One that's sure to give you chills. All right, guys, we are on episode number 11. And I'm going to go ahead and warn you guys right now, this case is going to be pretty dang long. I mean, I feel like I say that all the time, and it never really is, but I feel like this case is going to be really long. Um, There's a lot of information to go over, and I also want to give a little bit of a trigger warning because I am going to be talking about the death of two children. So I completely understand if you guys want to skip this case. Whenever I originally picked out this case, I did not realize what I was getting myself into. So with all that being said, let's go ahead and jump right into it. So, February 17th, 1970, at 3.42 a.m., dispatchers at Fort Bragg in North Carolina received an emergency phone call from physician and United States Army officer Jeffrey McDonald. He reported a stabbing and said he needed an ambulance at his home right away. Four military police officers responded to the 911 call. (laughs) Tinsley. Yeah, that would be Tinsley in the background, as usual. All right, where was I? All right. Four military police officers responded to the 911 call and arrived at his house located at 544 Castle Drive. At first, they thought that they were being called to break up a domestic disturbance. When they arrived, they found the front door closed and locked and the house completely dark inside. They knocked on the door, but no one answered. So they went around to the back of the house where they found the screen door closed and locked but then the back door behind it wide open. So it was just like one of those like screen doors. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Um, and then just like a normal door behind it. And it was like wide open. But the screen door was shut. But it wasn't locked. Okay. Um, they entered the home and realized very quickly that this was not just a domestic assault call. So they started searching the house, going from room to room. They walked into Kimberly McDonald's bedroom, who was the five-year-old daughter of Jeffrey. They were shocked by what they found. Kimberly was in her bed and had been clubbed in the head and stabbed Mm -hmm. in the neck with a knife ten times. Wow. They moved on to the next bedroom where they found her two-year-old sister, Kristen, in her own bed. She had been stabbed with a knife 33 times and then stabbed with an ice pick 15. Oh, my gosh. Two years old. Oh, why? I'm telling you, this case is crazy. Finally, they got to Jeffrey and his wife, Colette's bedroom. Colette was pregnant with the couple's third child and their first son. They found her lying on the bedroom floor. She had been repeatedly clubbed, both of her arms broken from being clubbed, and stabbed 21 times with an ice pick and 16 times with a knife. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey's torn pajama top was draped upon her chest, and on the headboard of their bed, the word pig was written in her blood. Hmm. And then Jeffrey McDonald was found next to his wife, alive but wounded. His wounds were not as severe, nor did he have as many as his family. So he was immediately taken to a nearby hospital, and the doctors looked him over. They found that he had suffered cuts and bruises on his face and chest, along with a mild concussion. He also had a stab wound on his left torso that the staff surgeon described as a clean, small, sharp incision that caused his left lung to be partially collapsed. So, obviously, they immediately questioned Jeffrey, 
and he told investigators that on the evening of February 16th, he had fallen asleep on the living room couch. He said that he was sleeping on the couch because Kristen, which I want to stop right here. Um, there are a couple of different reports on this. Some say Kristen, some say Kimberly, regardless, one of them had been laying in bed with Colette and she had peed on his side of the bed. So he says that he was woken later that night by the screams of Colette and Kimberly. He ran to help, but says he was attacked by three male intruders, one black and two white in the living room. And then a fourth intruder who he described as a white female with long blonde hair. And she was wearing high heeled boots and a white floppy hat that covered part of her face. What a weird. He said that, she stood nearby with a lighted candle and chanted, Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Wow. Yeah. So Jeffrey describes how the three males attacked him with a club and an ice pick and how during the attack, his pajama top had, like, been pulled over his head, like, to his wrist because it was, like, a long sleeve pajama top. Mm -hmm. So, like, if he was pulled over to the head and then it was, like, still on his wrist, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so he said that this is how he was able to defend like fend off of his tackers with a pajama top um so like he was able to ward off the thrust with the ice pick so eventually he said that he was overcome by his assailants and was knocked unconscious in the living room end of the hallway leading to the bedrooms so real quickly i want to talk about the mcdonald's so colette and jeffrey met whenever they were 12 years old they eventually became high school sweethearts, and in 1963, after learning Colette was pregnant, they married. They had their first child, Kimberly, and then Jeffrey went to medical school, and then they welcomed their second daughter, Kristen. And then in 1969, Jeffrey joined the Army, and that's whenever they moved to Fort Bragg. So, right off the bat, the Army's Criminal Investigation Division was like, okay, this just does not add up. There's... Something weird going on here. So they started studying the physical evidence and they found that it did not seem to support Jeffrey's story like at all. <laughs> so starting with the living room where he had supposedly fought for his life, it showed very few signs of a struggle. The coffee table had been overturned and then a flower pot was knocked over, but that was it. They also didn't find any fibers from Jeffrey's torn pajama top in the living room. And I mean, you definitely would find fibers considering he was defending himself exactly. with this so instead they found fibers um underneath colette's body and then in both kimberly and christian's bedroom hmm. and they even found one of the fibers underneath of Kristen's fingernail which was the two-year-old and then they found kimberly's blood on the pajama top as well hmm. and then the weapons were found outside of the back door so, like, basically, like, the intruders had literally just opened up the back door and dropped them. And dropped them. Yeah. So, the weapons, there was a kitchen knife, an ice pick, and then a three-foot-long piece of lumber. And all three were determined to have come from the McDonald house. So, it doesn't make a lot of sense why intruders would not bring their own weapons and just literally find weapons from the house. And then they also found um, the tips of, like, a surgical glove beneath the headboard where Pig was written. Hmm. Um, and, I mean, like, obviously they had figured out that whoever wrote it was wearing gloves. And so they found those gloves and they were able to identify them as coming from a box of gloves in the McDonald family home. 
the McDonald family all had different blood types, which is actually a statistical anomaly. And I found that pretty pretty interesting. And I tried to find out what their blood types were, but I couldn't. Hmm. Um, but it's like very, like extremely rare for every single member of the household to have a different blood type. Have a different blood type, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's like very like crazy rare like it doesn't happen (laughs) so they used this to theorize theorize what had actually happened that night um because obviously they all had different blood types and so they were able to see who was where at what time so they investigators theorized that a fight had begun in the master master bedroom between jeffrey and colette who possibly had argued over Kristen wetting his side of the bed or Kimberly wetting his side of the bed, one of them. They speculated that the argument turned physical as she hit him on the forehead with a hairbrush, which resulted in his concussion, which I feel like you got to hit him pretty dang hard with the hairbrush to give him a concussion. I think. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know. Okay. I, be done. Well, I guess if you hit him just right, probably. Yeah. So they think he retaliated by hitting her first with his fist and then beating her with a piece of lumber. They then think Kimberly heard the commotion and walked to their room and due to like her blood and this part's so sad, but brain matter found oh. yeah. Found in the doorway of their wow. bedroom. Yeah, they think that she like walked in and then saw them and that's whenever Yeah. He uh, hit her with the piece of lumber. So they think that Jeffrey believed that Colette was dead at this point, and so then he carried Kimberly back to her bedroom, where he then stabbed her with the ice pick um, and the knife. So then going to Kristen's room, they believe that Colette had managed to get up and walk to Kristen's bedroom, and they think that she had thrown herself over Kristen to cover her and hopefully, like, block her from the blows, um, which breaks my heart. Like, in this woman's final moments, after being beaten and, like, basically dying... She went to try and save her daughter. So sad. So they believe this because they found her blood on Kristen's bed, like sheets and um, covers, and one on one of the walls there was also her blood. So then after stabbing both of them, he wrapped Colette's body in a sheet and carried it back to their bedroom. And in the process, he left a smudged footprint of her blood on his way out of Kristen's. Kristen's bedroom. Mm. CID investigators found an issue of Esquire in the living room, which had an article talking all about the Manson family murders. And so they theorized that Jeffrey attempted to cover up the murders by making it look like it had something to do with Manson or possibly a copycat. Mm. And then they believe that he put on the surgical gloves and then went to the master bedroom where he used Colette's blood to write pig on the headboard. And then they believe that he stabbed them all with the ice pick post-mortem. Wow. Yeah. Then they think that he took, that he went to the um, bathroom and took a scalpel blade from the supply closet and stabbed himself once clean and swift. Which, right now, it does not make sense why everyone else was stabbed with knives and ice picks and beat with clubs exactly. and he was stabbed with a freaking scalpel especially my little two-year-old yeah who can't even hardly talk is going to do that mm-hmm. or get that like exactly really he was stabbed with a scalpel where did like where did the scalpel just so happen come mm-hmm. from and 
the intruders found the scalpel and stabbed him with it. And let's not forget, he's a doctor. That's right. So he knows where to stab without have, leaving life-threatening Yeah. So wounds. he knows exactly where to stab mm-hmm. to collapse his lung to make it look like a more serious injury than what yeah. it actually was. So he then called 911 and discarded all of the weapons out the back door, allegedly. And then disposed of the surgical gloves and the scalpel blade and then lay next to Colette's body while he waited for the military police to arrive. So then on April 6th, 1970, Army investigators interrogated MacDonald less than a month later. On May 1st, the Army formally charged him with the murder of his family. An initial Army Article 32 hearing into into MacDonald's possible guilt convened on July 5th, 1970. His defense concentrated on the poor quality of the CID investigation and the existence of other suspects, specifically a woman named Helena Stockley. The defense claimed to have located Helena, and Jeffrey claimed that this was the woman who he had seen with the three men. She was a well-known drug user in the town, and witnesses claimed that she had admitted to involvement in the crimes, and several remembered her wearing clothing similar to what Jeffrey had described. Hmm. So then on January 13th, 1970, Colonial Rock issued a report recommending that the charges be dismissed against Jeffrey MacDonald because they were not true, and he recommended that civilian authorities investigate Stockley. So then, obviously, all the charges were dropped, and in December, yeah, in December, Jeffrey received an honorable discharge from Hmm. the Army, and he returned to New York City where he worked as a doctor briefly, and then he moved to Long Beach, California in 1971, where he became an emergency room physician at the St. Mary Medical Center. He also made several media appearances, and on December 15, 1970, he appeared on an episode of The Dick Cavett Show, during which he made jokes and complained about the investigation and its focus on him. Oh, gosh. Mm -hmm. During this time, yeah, big douchebag. During this time, Freddie Kassab, hopefully I'm saying his last name right, who was the stepfather um, of Colette, turned against him. So in the beginning, he was actually one of his supporters, like Mm -hmm. an advocate for him, and actually testified in support of his innocence during the Article 32 hearing. So after Jeffrey's appearance on the show, Freddie's support lessened, and then Freddie demanded that Jeffrey provide him with a copy of the Article 32 hearings transcript, but Jeffrey refused. So basically, um, I guess whenever they do the Article 32 hearing, the only people that are allowed to be in there, it's not like a normal like courtroom proceeding. Mm-hmm. Since it's an army investigation, I mm-hmm. guess the only people that are allowed to be in there are like... The people who are actually testifying at that time, like when you're testifying, that's Mm -hmm. the only time you can be in there. And just obviously the people that are a part of the actual investigation. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a normal hearing where like people can actually come in and like watch. So Freddie eventually received a copy of the transcript and he noted numerous inconsistencies in Jeffrey's testimony. And then in March of 1971, in company with Army investigators, um, Freddie visited the crime scene for several hours in order to test the physical evidence against Jeffrey's testimony. His work convinced him that Jeffrey himself had committed the crimes. And since the Army's investigation was completed, they, the only way for Freddie to bring it to trial was via a citizen's complaint through the Justice Department. So... 
He filed a citizen's complaint in early 1972, but it was held in limbo because the three murders happened while McDonald was serving in the army. And since he was no longer in the army, it was just kind of like held in limbo. And then in between 1972 and 1974, the case remained trapped in limbo within the files of the Justice Department as they struggled over whether or not to prosecute. And then on April 30th, 1974, Freddie, along with another group, like a whole group of people, um, they presented, presented a citizen's complaint against Jeffrey to U.S. Chief District Court Judge Algernon Butler, requesting the convening of a grand jury to indict him for the murders. A grand jury was convened on August 12, 1974. Um, Jeffrey McDonald was indicted on January 24, 1975, and then on May 23rd, he was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to the murders. So there's so much to this trial, like so much. And I just really wanted to focus on the big factors. Um, but if you want to read all about it, I would recommend the Wikipedia entry on Jeffrey McDonald. It talks all about the trial, the setbacks, as well as like, um, just it just talks about everything so I would recommend that if you want to go more in detail to it because there's a lot of information about it so big factors that played into the trial were the magazine article on the Manson family the fact that he had no defensive wounds on his arms or hands that were consistent with mm -hmm. a struggle and then a pretty damaging piece of evidence against him was an audio tape made of the April 16th 1970 interview by military investigator investigators the jury heard his matter-of-fact, indifferent retelling of the murders. I mean, your whole family was murdered. I think that you would show, like, some kind of emotion, like crying or something, not just be so matter-of-fact about it. And the one time whenever he did show emotion was um, he became very defensive and emotional in response to suggestions by the investigators that he had committed the murders. So not emotional at the retelling of how his whole entire murder... In to his whole entire family was murdered, but the fact that he could possibly be involved. Mm. So investigators also confronted him with their knowledge of his extramarital affairs, to which he responded, oh, you guys are more thorough than I thought. Gosh. Yeah. And then on August 23rd, 1979, McDonald was convicted of one count of first-degree murder in the death of Kristen and two counts of second-degree degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly over the jury after the jury deliberated for just over six hours the judge ended up giving him three life consecutive sentences in June of 1979 so before the trial began Jeffrey invited author Joe McGinnis to write a book about the case he was given full access to him and and his defense during the trial so, Jeffrey thought that this book was going to be about his innocence, but Joe's book, Fatal Vision, portrayed Jeffrey as a narcissistic sociopath who was indeed guilty of killing his family. Yeah. Jeffrey sued Joe McGinnis in 1987 for fraud, and they settled out of court for $325,000. So, the book was later turned into a movie with the same name. And Joe McGinnis made a follow-up book named Final Vision, which was made into a movie which aired on the ID channel in 2017. So, I watched this in prep for this case, and I highly recommend it. 
it doesn't focus on the murder. It actually focuses on Joe and the entire trial that took place nine years after the murder. And it's really, really interesting. It's very good. Side note, I found out that you can download the Investigation Discovery app, IDGo, and watch everything the IG, the ID channel has to offer as long as you have your satellite provider information, which is how I watch this show. It has all past shows and movies as well as like what's currently on TV. So I've been binging some ID channel, hashtag not sponsored, just really excited about this. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that definitely sounded like an ad. So... Here's Joe's theory, because I definitely wanted to mention this, because this is what I believe happened as well. So, he had access to everything, like, everything. He, I mean, Jeffrey assumed that he was writing the story about his innocence, and so he gave him it all. Like, he had access to his condo, um, like, after he was even, like, after he was convicted, and so he was literally access to the condo without anyone else. Hmm. And so he was able to read, like, all the documents associated with the case, like, things that weren't even allowed in court. Um, he read Jeff's psyche vows, where one psych, like, one psychologist said he was a sociopath. Um, one said that he was a psycho- psychopath. Another said he was incapable of real emotions and that it was all staged. Because, um, you know, like, true psychopaths, like, can't feel emotions and they basically, like, mimic or act out, like, the appropriate mm-hmm emotion a normal person would have so jed what that's not the word i was saying okay (laughs) joe read over jeff's written account that's what i tried to combine those two words um so he read over the written account of what had happened on the on that night and on the very first page he mentions that he was taking a drug to lose weight for a boxing match in russia which joe found out that there was actually no boxing match Mm. um And the drug was, like, essentially speed. And after looking into, like, the side effects of speed, um, it can cause psychotic breaks. And so, essentially, this is what he believes happened. He believes that when Kimberly wet the bed, Colette basically, like, undermined him whenever he was, she was like, I mean, she's a kid. Like, Mm. yeah, she's going to wet the bed. Um, And so... He thinks that this caused a fight where he hit her, and then she retaliated by hitting him with a piece of lumber. So, whenever we, like, first mentioned lumber, I was like, where the heck did this piece of lumber come from? Like, who just has a piece of lumber laying around? And in the movie, I don't know if this is the actual case, but this definitely makes more sense to me. Colette takes the piece of lumber out of the window. So exactly like how we do we put like wood mm-hmm. in the window to you know make sure people don't can't break into the and ha- through the window right. and everything and so that makes complete sense that mm-hmm. the piece of wood was in there to yeah. make sure you know people didn't break in so then he believes that she hit him over the head with the lumber which makes way more sense than a hairbrush mm-hmm. to give him a concussion exactly and, I mean, like, you could get, like, a pretty thick piece of lumber to put in the, like, window. So, I'm sure it was pretty thick. Okay. So, then um, it basically played out similar to what the investigators thought. Um, they believed that Kimberly came in to the room, and then he hit her with a piece of lumber. And this is when Colette stabbed him with a knife. Because um, he did have a couple of stab wounds. Like, he beat her with what he thought was to death with the piece of lumber. Um, and then, like... They obviously believe that that's what Kimberly was beat with, too, was Mm. a piece of lumber. 
So Jeffrey McDonald didn't learn about the contents of Joe's book until he was interviewed by 60 Minutes. And I can only imagine how well that went. Yes. I also want to mention that, um, like, a lot of people during the trial and stuff, they were like, well, why would he kill uh, Kristen? Like, she didn't see it. She didn't, you know, she wasn't a part of it at all. She was in bed and there's like a bed in bed asleep and a couple people a couple of different people theorized that um he killed her literally just to make it look like he did not kill the family because he had no motive to kill her because mm-hmm. she didn't see anything and so they thought that he, they believed that he thought in his head like they would be like well why would i kill her like why mm-hmm. how could i kill exactly. my two-year-old child exactly how could you yeah exactly like not to mention stabbing like stabbing (laughs) so there is a website called the jeffrey mcdonald case.com and that's where i got a lot of information it has everything transcripts photos the autopsy reports even their marriage license it has sketches of like the people that jeff said were involved it has everything about this case And I'm also going to warn you right now that on the homepage, there are the crime scene photos and you see it all. It's extremely graphic and rough. Um, Like I was not expecting that whenever I opened the page and I felt downright sick to my stomach seeing it. So I'm going to give you the option. Do you want to see them? Like I'm going to, I'm going to be honest. They are hard to look at. There's one photo in particular of Kimberly that. I feel like I have to. Yeah, literally, I can't get out of my head. (laughs) Um, And especially thinking of the fact that her father did that. Like, I can't. So, let me pull those up real quick so you can see them. All right, so this is Colette. And this is her body. Wow. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. And then this is Kimberly. Mm. Aww. Oh, that's an image I can't get out of my oh head. Oh my gosh, how could you do that to your own child? Then this is the Kristen. children, oh. Oh gosh. It is heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's yeah. yeah, it's hard to look at. I wouldn't at. suggest looking at it. Uh-uh. It's, mm. it's rough. It is. I mean... I feel like it's rough enough and it was a total stranger that come in and did it, but the fact that this was his children, I, uh, I yeah. just, it, it's 10 times worse. Yeah. No. It, oh, it's, it's really awful. Um, but I do highly recommend checking out that website. If you do want more information about the case, just steer clear of the very first yeah. homepage because um, it is pretty graphic. Um, but, I mean, it has, like, the autopsy photos and stuff on there, and, like, you see everything like in the autopsy photos uh i mean it's a really good like website for information um the site is researched and maintained by christina mazewitz i'm not really sure that's how you say her name but she did a really like a really amazing job um and i was very curious like curious who this person was and there is a like kind of an about page on christina um and she didn't even know Colette or anything about the case until she watched it on the news. And she lived, like, a very similar life to Colette. Like, her husband was in the Army. She was a mother. 
And so she just kind of like got attached to the case and like ended up researching it herself. And so it's pretty incredible. Like she did all of this research herself and she created this website. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so she's just basically like an OG, like true crime junkie. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the website, it's very informative, but the pictures are, they're rough. Yeah. Very graphic. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and let you know, you're not going to get it, be able to get it out of your head. So again, there's so much to this case. There's a ton of appeals. And again, I just don't want to get into all of it because it's just, there's just so much information about it. Again, recommend checking out the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page or, um, the website I just mentioned. Um, and you can actually like read the like actual transcripts of like the appeals and stuff. So the most recent one was in 2017, which was denied. He is serving his life sentence at a federal prison in Cumberland, Maryland. Um, he continues to maintain that he is innocent and his next scheduled parole hearing is in May of 2020. Wow. So not too far off. That is, that's coming up real soon. Yeah. Also in... August 2002, Jeffrey got remarried to Catherine Critch, who was a former friend. Their marriage occurred while he was incarcerated. I don't think you should be allowed to do I that. I don't get that. That is wrong. At all. Why would you want to marry someone? Wow. He's in prison. I think it happens a lot, though. Yeah. So he was in California, incarcerated in California whenever they got married. And after their marriage, McDonald was transferred to the prison in Maryland, which is closer to his new legal state of residence and second wife. Which, I didn't know that was an option. Me either. I thought you got moved because, like, good behavior or you did something wrong or you knew somebody at the prison. I didn't know you could just be like, yeah, I didn't either because I thought that they wanted you to be further away from your home. I'm assuming that, like, they did it because it was his new legal state, but, like, I don't understand that. I wonder what that, what does that mean? Your new legal state. Like that was his legal state of residence. Where he used to live? No. Like I'm, I'm assuming that he like moved while in prison, like legally moved his address. That's the only thing I can think of. I don't understand how you do that either. I don't know. Maybe I'll ask someone about that, but I don't know. I didn't know that was even a thing though, but this case very eerie and very disturbing it's insane oh well, maybe this episode wasn't as long as i thought it was gonna be no we didn't do very much chatting in between no, we didn't we kind of just stuck to the facts it's always really really sad then when kids are involved and it's, it's always sad when kids are involved and it's sad when it's a parent yeah that's what it does saying. it i mean kind of reminds me of chris watts mm-hmm. the whole time i was thinking chris watts chris watts yeah, but the thing is, though, he isn't claiming his innocence over and over again. True. I think he's guilty. Oh, 100%. I believe it, too. I believe it happened exactly but how Joe described. If he admits it, then more people are going to hate him. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to be able to live with himself. No. But right now, as long as he's denying it and in denial, he can live with himself. I think that he's actually a psychopath, though. Killing their whole family. What kind of person would even want to marry someone like that? I know. That's what I'm saying, too. I don't care if they're in prison or not. I think he's a psychopath. And, I mean, people aren't just going to lie. Like, psychologists aren't just going to lie on their psych evals. Mm -hmm. If they think that he's a psychopath, they're going to say it. 
I mean, I would say that that's exactly what happened. And and he did it because him and his wife got into a fight. That's what everyone believes. But again, he his says daughter he didn't do walked it. in and saw him fighting. So he well, no, her? Um, they got into a fight and then he beat her with a piece of wood. And then she walked in on that. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's. I mean, I understand you have fits of rage, fits of anger, but geez. Yeah. That's beyond. That's psychotic. Very true. I don't, I just don't understand. That's so sad. So, so sad. Especially after seeing the pictures, it's even worse. Mm -hmm. I know, they're rough. I mean, because you can imagine it, but then once you see it, it's like, how? How yeah. could someone do that? What kind of monster would do that? How did you find it? I honestly have absolutely no idea how. I don't remember how finding I've this guy. I've never heard of this. Um, I don't remember where I found it. I actually have like an entire book of, like a, a notebook of like cases that I like want to cover, <laughs> and so I just literally write the names in there, and I write like a little information about the case. But I didn't write, and sometimes I write like where I found it. But I don't. I didn't write where I, I found this one. Hmm. And so I, I'm not, I don't remember, but I've never like heard of, heard it on a podcast or anything. Mm-mm. So I'm not sure. I watch a lot of YouTube murders. Yeah. Listen to them. I don't watch them. I listen to them at work and I've never heard of this. I, believe... I, mean, I have a lot of them that I come across and I don't watch them, but I'll bookmark them to watch later. And I never come across that. I mean, I, believe, I have hundreds of them. Yeah, oh, trust me, I've listened to a lot too. I believe because I I I know for a fact I've never heard it anywhere, and so I I'm pretty sure that I came across this case whenever because I was researching a case. There was a case that I remember hearing on a podcast, but I couldn't find it anywhere. And it was about like a military man who uh, killed his mistress who was pregnant, and. I was searching for that case, and I'm pretty sure that that's yes, where I came I about forgot. this. And his pregnant wife, who's pregnant with her his yeah. son, his mm-hmm. first son. Mm-hmm. How could you do that? Yeah. I, I totally forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was pregnant. Have you been listening or watching anything new? Mm, no. I just keep up on my ones that I watch every week, listen to every week. I've been listening to Killer Queens. It's a podcast. It's There's by two so sisters. There's so many different podcasts out there. It's by two sisters. is really good. You Killer like Queens? Mm-hmm. They're funny. They're really funny, yeah. Hmm. Um, and then, obviously, I've been watching the ID channel. Is it a murder podcast? Yeah. And they're funny? Yeah, they are funny. <laughs> they're, like, sarcastic funny yeah. towards each other. Um, and so, like, whenever one says something, they have, like, sarcasm. That's really funny. Because they're two sisters. It's really funny. They're in, like, their 30s, I think. I, I feel like... At times, whenever we're laughing and joking, after doing something so serious and so horrific, I feel like we're given, we're not, we're being disrespectful. And it's it's not that we're being disrespectful. I just feel like you need a palate cleanser after yeah. that. So, I've been watching the ID channel, and I watched a documentary called A Murder in Mansfield. And it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a little slow, but... So, it's about a 12-year-old's father who kills his mom and buried her underneath the house and is convicted. And then the doc follows the kid as an adult and he visits the house where it occurred. 
Um, he visits his family who wanted nothing to do with him afterwards. And he even goes to the prison and visits his father. And it is, it's really, really interesting documentary. Um, and it kind of also made me think a little bit too, because I feel like we don't think about what happens like to the kid. Like you're like, oh yeah, that's sad. Like their life's disrupted, but you really don't think about it after that. Mm-hmm. Like you don't think like what that kid's life goes, like what happens to that kid's life. Right. Um, so like not only did he lose his mom, but then he lost his dad. His dad went to prison and then his family wanted nothing to do with him. Oh. And so he ended up getting adopted by a different family and he had a little sister his little sister got adopted by a different family as well. And so he had... They were all separated. Yeah, they were separated. Aww. And the family that adopted the sister wanted nothing to... Like, didn't want him to have anything to do with his sister. Mm. They wanted to, like, basically, like, raise her as their own and not have anything to do with what had happened. Um, and his sister was adopted, like, a, an adoptive sister. So, like, his parents adopted her. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, but they Still. wanted, they wanted like nothing to do with her. So mm-hmm. he didn't have anything to do with his sister growing up. Um, and I can't imagine like your family not wanting anything to do with you. Cause he testified against his father and like, that's kind of what sealed the fate, a 12 year old testifying against their dad. Wow. So I can't imagine like your family not wanting anything to do with you mm-hmm. after that. Like, I'm so sorry that I did the right thing. My bad. Um, but it, it is a really like crazy case and. It just kind of makes you think about, like, this kid lost his entire life. And, like, you think about what happens afterwards. And, like, the psychological. Oh, I can't imagine. Yeah. He, like, goes I mean, to I, the... I literally couldn't, couldn't even... No. He yeah. goes to the prison and actually, like, confronts his dad. And his dad's, like... Um, he admits that he killed his mom, but he says it was an accident. And he's, like... Dad, like, I went over, like, the crime scene photos. I went over everything. I went over the autopsy. He's, like, she was, like, her skull was, like, fractured. Like, that wasn't an accident. Like, she Mm -hmm. didn't just accidentally run into a coffee table. And so it was, like, a really interesting thing um, to listen to. So. I did listen to something today. It was a documentary about um, the craigslist killer but it was about the daughter oh and she met up with one of the craigslist's murder victim's son and she was scared to meet him because you know her dad was a monster Mm -hmm. and the thing was is he he wasn't a monster towards her you know yeah 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 and she was afraid to meet him because she didn't know what they would think of her because it was her dad Mm -hmm. And she felt really guilty because her dad is the one that asked her if he would uh, do the uh, Craigslist for him. And so she's the one that set up the Craigslist account and all that, not knowing what what he was was going to do. And so she said she felt so guilty because if she wouldn't have done that, maybe none of this would have happened. Can you imagine? And so she felt horrible. And, I mean, I, you don't realize she had nothing to do with yeah, it. You can, know but can you I imagine mean, this, how that psychologically affected yeah, her? Yeah, and, and that's what she was scared to death to meet this guy because she didn't know if they would hold her yeah. guilty. And he's like, it's not your fault. You know, you didn't know your dad is the monster, not you. And 
you know, he was very forgiving towards her, but, you know, at the same time, it takes a very forgiving person mm-hmm. to do that because she did set up the account. She did feel guilty, even though she didn't know what was going on. So I thought that was very, very interesting. What did you watch it on? Just one of those YouTube things. Oh, you have to send me the says, link. Yeah, I will. I can't remember what the name of it was, but it was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I always find it um, really interesting that kind of, I don't, I don't know. I just find it interesting how like serial killers act towards their family. Mm-hmm. And if there is any kind of. You wouldn't, I mean, golly, clues. that's the last thing you would think. I and know. So because she, like, she had no clue, you know, none. Well, I'm sure looking back, she probably thinks there was warnings. Well, this was weird, yeah. But who wants to think that way? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, it's it your was. It was very interesting. Yeah, that I will and have beautiful. to beautiful. She was absolutely gorgeous. Really? Yeah, and very young. I mean, not real young, but I mean, she was young, a lot younger than I would expect her to have been. And to have all that on her shoulders. It's rough. I mean, we can't. We can't pick our parents, you know. Mm-hmm. True. All right, but that is it for this episode. We better quit before you hear a lot of background noise. All right, guys. So thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye.